Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic here with Aaron Cameron. The podcast is, as always, powered by First National and done in partnership with the Canadian Real Estate Forums. Our guest today is Amy Price, who is the managing partner and co-head of U.S. at Bental Green Oak. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we get into you know, the, the, the very high-level uh, scope of, of your job and the view you have of so much of the real estate world, we'd love to hear about your backstory and how you got into real estate. Well, the simple answer is that I graduated from college with a liberal arts degree no idea what I wanted to do as a career. So I decided to head to Wall Street for Business 101, as I thought about it at the time, and just learn, quote, the financial industry a bit. I happened into real estate at that time because it was a group uh, within the investment bank where you got the breadth of financial kind of experience. So because real estate was different, you did M&A, did corporate finance, mortgage originations, private equity investing. So to me, it was the place to go learn about finance, first and foremost. It happened to be real estate. Um, The second reason I happened into the group was just because I'd met a lot of really fun and interesting people through the interview process. So I figured it would be a good place to spend a couple of years. So that's what got me started. I spent three years in the real estate group at Morgan Stanley. I went back to business school really to decide what I did want to do with my career. And basically it took me 180 degrees back to where I'd been. And it was really at that point coming out of business school where I was focused on building a career in the real estate investing business. At this point, you are still on Wall Street. When did you get into Bentall? What was that move like? Yeah, it took me a while. So I spent the first 17 years of my career with Morgan Stanley. So I started in New York. I went back to New York after business school. I spent a little bit of time in Hong Kong. And then I also uh, moved to San Francisco. So for me, I'm from California. San Francisco was always the round trip. And I spent about 10 years with Morgan Stanley out on the West Coast. Through my time at Morgan Stanley, again, I really focused on the investing side of the business. That's where I grew up and transactions and, and deal origination. As the platform at Morgan Stanley grew, I had experience and the opportunity to work across the risk spectrum. So core fund, value-add, opportunistic funds. And then I just got to a point in my career where I felt like I'd plateaued within Morgan Stanley and was thinking about, well, what do I want to do next? And for me, it's always been a lot about kind of personal challenge and growth and where can I go learn something new and make sure I'm continuing to, again, kind of be challenged and grow as a person. So I left Morgan Stanley. And I ended up joining, at the time, Bental Kennedy. I'd say the reason for that is actually an individual by the name of Mike McKee. Mike was the CEO of the U.S. business for Bental Kennedy at the time. And he is someone that I had crossed paths with very early in my career. So I had been literally, I think, an analyst at Morgan Stanley, sitting in the back of the room in meetings where Mike was the CFO of the Irvine company and Morgan Stanley was doing some work for him. So I had exposure to Mike very much from, from the bleacher seat, so to speak, but I thought he, you know, just really impressive individual, really knew a lot about actually running a real estate business. So 
Long story short, that was my hook. I also found it a really interesting opportunity because Bentall Kennedy had just come together as a North American business. The Kennedy business in Canada was very well established and well regarded. The business in the US was a bit more, I'd say, specific, a bit more of a niche business. And there was a lot of opportunity to continue to build around that US foundation into a broader business. So for me, it was getting to come work for someone who I had a lot of respect for and come in to a company at a point in time where there was, again, a lot of kind of forward thinking and focus on how we continue to build and evolve the US business, which was really exciting. So that was uh, almost nine years ago now. So before we get too much further into Mental Kennedy and then and now, now BGO, just a quick uh, sideline. Sitting here in Canada, we've seen a lot of movies about Wall Street, you know, most notably The Wolf of Wall Street. But you can go back into decades of fine movie making about the excesses of Wall Street, especially in connection with finance. And Morgan Stanley would fall in that group. What was your impression of, of that scene going through it in, uh, in former years? Well, I'd say probably like most things, the Hollywood version is quite exaggerated, but based on a lot of truth. So I think the trading desk world of Wall Street is very different than the investment banking world of Wall Street, which is where I sat. So that's kind of one thing. But the Morgan Stanley and the Wall Street of the early 90s when I joined versus today, I think is radically different. Certainly as a, as a woman, I think it was definitely a very male-dominated culture. It was still a time when I think common point of view is that it really wasn't the place for women. So that's, I think, changed a lot. But yeah, there's a... There's a lot of truth probably in the foundations of those stories. We'll move forward into the next stage of your progression, but it clearly sets you up. You, lear- you learned a lot, I'm, I'm imagining, being in that kind of environment you know, back in that generation or at that time. I think I did. We could spend a whole podcast on that. If you want. <laughs> yeah. Okay, there you go. Come back to Book me. It. You know? Book it. Book it. Yeah, we'll come exactly. back and we'll just talk about Wall Street in the 90s through the eyes of Amy Price, okay? We, we could um, do that. <laughs> so Bentol merged with Green Oak. So maybe just talk about that experience. So that's fairly recent, just a couple of years ago. And, and maybe just talk about the symmetries that that presented and why it made such sense for those two companies to merge. I guess I'd start by saying, I think both the Bentol Kennedy and Green Oak leadership teams had a common view of the industry and a common desire to see where they wanted to be as a company. And what do I mean by that? There was a lot of consolidation going on with managers. And I think it was a point in time where you really had to take a view as to how are we as a firm going to be successful. And you either decide that you're truly going to be a global real estate investment management business. You're going to be, you know, a specialized, regional, product-focused, strategy-focused business. But there's a lot of risk of being caught in the middle of it. And so I think for both Bentall Kennedy and Green Oak, it was a time where we were each doing some of that soul searching, if you will, in terms of where do we want to grow and take our businesses. And there was, again, a like-minded view of really wanting to be a global real estate investment management company. And that meant scale. And it meant being able to serve clients across strategies, geographies, you know, the risk spectrum, et cetera. And the really interesting thing about the two companies as they came together is that they're entirely complementary. So one business, much more core-oriented, another much more value-add-oriented. One focused in U.S. and Canada, you know, one with a presence in Europe and Asia. 
So when you put these two pieces of the puzzle together, there was actually a very strong fit in terms of the new company, you know, looked pretty different than either the legacy companies, but again, with really out any material overlap in terms of teams or businesses. So kind of on the one hand, probably textbook business school case study of, of why companies would come together. And so that, that strategic rationale was, was I'd say, pretty obvious. The, the probably the greater focus and the harder part of that almost is how to then take two fundamentally pretty different businesses and really bring them together as one and define what does it mean to be, you know, bent tall green oak in a way that's, that is distinctly different from either of our legacy businesses. So Amy, you mentioned who and what you are going forward. So define DGO now, you know, who are you and what are you and what are you doing again going forwards? Yeah, good question. So if you look at Bental Green Oak or BGO today, we are a global firm, right? Real estate investment management company. We manage about $50 billion globally. And we, very importantly, right, we invest across regions of the world. So we are in the US and Canada, Europe and Asia. We have a diverse product suite, if you will. So we're really focused on being able to offer solutions to our investors and our clients across the risk spectrum. So we have core, core plus, and value-add vehicles on the equity side. Uh, we also have a debt business primarily in Europe and then in the U.S. and Canada on behalf of Sun Life's general account. And we also invest, you know, it's important to us that we've got different structures as well that we're offering. So for example, investors can come into open-end products, closed-end products, et cetera, that align with the different priorities and strategies of different clients. So if I kind of summarize it, you know, we want to be a preferred investment manager for our clients. And we want to be able to do that across geographies, across strategies, and across structures. And we think that's important because really that's where the market's moving, right? You know, we, we want to do this because we've heard it from our clients, frankly, in terms of wanting to have fewer relationships and stronger relationships really on a, you know, on a global basis. So I, I got to ask then, Amy, so you're obviously, your domain is the US and every one of those geographies you just described would fill a different need for your company. What does the US provide that, that the other markets, Asia, Europe, Canada, don't provide? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the US is the one country and the one market where both Bental Kennedy and Green Oak had really strong businesses. So it is the one part of the world where we now truly do have the full breadth of products and solutions for our clients. So we have a core fund, a core plus fund, and a value add fund on the equity side. We also have what we call separate accounts or direct relationships with large clients. So the US is definitely our largest market, but that also aligns with the opportunity in the US in many ways. I think the US is, there are just a lot more markets that you can invest into, certainly compared to Canada. I'd argue also compared to Europe and Asia. And I'd say the other reality is that most global investors, institutional investors, they tend to invest in their domestic market first, and then the U.S. market tends to be the second market, right? So there is typically a lot more capital wanting exposure to U.S. real estate than other markets. So I guess related to that, then obviously, you know, the the volume in the U.S. will dwarf Canada. I guess we'll put it in the context of that. But how have the capital flows been, you know, during COVID? I know they're very, very healthy and robust prior to COVID. But how are you finding the capital flows now into, you know, one of or the most important market in the world? 
Yeah, it's a good question. So I'd, I'd answer that in a couple dimensions. One is by risk and by strategy. So I'd say we are finding and see that there's more capital interested in committing to closed-end funds right now. And I think that's because closed-end funds, typically you make a commitment and then you have you know a kind of a two, three-year investment period. And the mindset is that uh, it may not be quite the optimal time to be an investor yet, but real estate lags the economic cycle. Investors believe it's coming. So they are gearing up to ensure that they get exposure to the U.S. market you know, through this next cycle. Comparing that to capital that flows typically into more of a core right strategy, they're typically, when you invest into core, you're typically investing in more of an open-end structure. And so what you're really doing is you're not just providing capital to invest into the market going forward, you're also buying a set of assets at the current value. And I'd say we still have a very large delta between private market values for real estate and the public markets. So for example, in office, the large office REITs are still trading probably 30% off of their pre-COVID highs. And yet in the private market, office values have not materially adjusted yet. <laughs> and so again, there's a little bit of a disconnect. And I'd say investors are more on the sidelines waiting to see what happens with the values of real estate, again, in a private market basis. We just maybe expand a little bit, Amy, just for our listeners that may not you know, just have the have the experience that that closed versus open. So on its open funded, I guess you can you can come in and come out throughout the duration, right? And is it every quarter? So, that's right. right. Okay, and then on a closed end, it's kind of like you're going to raise a certain dollar figure, and you kind of peg. I want. I'm going to use a number. It may be off, but seven hundred million dollars closed fund, and you raise that seven hundred million. And it's in there for a particular duration, and that's it. They can't come in or exactly. can't get out. And then you take that seven hundred million. And then you deploy it into new assets, right? Exactly. And so, so I think you explained it, but just, just maybe double down and the value for that. And maybe it's a bit COVID related, but people are kind of future proofing their investments. Like, how does that, what's the logic behind why open versus closed today? Well, I think there's two probably themes, or and there's probably two things we hear most from our investors. One is that, it's a timing, right? It's when do they want the exposure? So for value add, you kind of queue in, you make a commitment that you actually get exposure to, i.e. the real estate you know, is acquired going forward for a period of time, that investment period, which is very different than on the open-end side. When your money comes in, your money comes in, and you're, again, you're buying a pool of, of current assets. So I'd say a main difference is timing. But the other difference is risk. And the other, I mean, I, there's no question that in today's world, low interest rates, et cetera, I see a lot of investors looking for real estate to provide a certain return. So call that, you know, on total return basis, maybe it's only seven or eight percent. Right now, only allocating to a core strategy will not achieve that return for you through this next cycle. Right. So by definition, if that's your expectation for returns coming out of real estate in your portfolio, you're going to take some more risk in order to meet that need. How does that influence your investment decisions through Bentall Green Oak? Because I assume now you're speaking about the market at large, that you're seeing a high interest level in you know, real estate returns going forward from this point. So how do you reflect that in what you're doing at, at BGO? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Again, I'd say one level of it is we really try to give our clients or our prospective clients a choice. And it is so aligned with what their investment objectives are 
So they're really making an allocation decision. And most simplistically, I then think about it as our decision as the real estate investor is to make the best investment decisions for the core strategy, for core plus or value add strategy. And it's really our investors who are allocating their capital and saying, you know what, I want this profile or I want this. And it's our job to deploy that capital in the best strategy. So to be clear, I think there are very attractive opportunities to invest you know, across the risk spectrum right now. But, you know, it's quite selective, right? It's not broad-based. You got to be really clear on where you have the conviction to invest today as opposed to going forward. You know, one of the most fascinating aspects, I think, let wait till your answer comes first, but when talking to individuals like yourself that have the amount of capital that's coming into their institution with the obligation to deploy it, finding scale is often a challenge. So how do you approach that? I mean, we recently interviewed a gentleman that's, that's got a similar kind of role and, and finding one asset at a time is just really hard because you just got so much capital to get out. So are you doing, are you constantly looking for major opportunities? Are you doing joint ventures? Like what's the strategy to get you know, your capital out, but in a smart fashion, risk adjusted and making sure that it aligns with your investors' you know, expectations? Yeah, I really think that we try not to be driven by scale. The driver is, can we invest smartly? And we will look at a deal, let's say as small as 50 million, you know, probably not 10, but 50. And we will also look at how do we establish a large strategic relationship that's going to allow us to deploy capital, you know, not just today, but over time, right? So maybe we're committing to a development program, for example, or a future acquisition program. So we'll do relatively small to relatively large I think it's dangerous, to be honest, to be driven too much by scale. I think you've got to be driven by the smart real estate investment decisions. You have to have a team that's set up to be able to do relatively small to relatively large. And then scale comes, right? But again, I think scale is actually driven a lot by your investor's appetite for the product. But we would much rather not invest the capital unwisely, right, than invested for the sake of having it invested. So it, it really does come back to the conviction of making good investments for our clients. And do you find a disconnect now in terms of, you, know, you mentioned previously, there's a bit of a disconnect in the market in terms of sale prices coming down. And then obviously the way the market's evaluating real estate on a day-to-day basis, which would be, of course, the public markets. So do you find that disconnect as well when you're looking for assets for where you think you should be acquiring assets? And then of course, you know, vendor expectations? Uh, Yeah, I didn't say right now in this type of a market, for sure. I'd say we, to simplify, there's a lot of capital in general that wants to get invested into all of the things that we are doing a lot more of right now. So for example, if you think about e-commerce, that is driving demand for industrial and cold storage more specifically. You think about the focus on science, a vaccine, absolutely driving investor demand for life science. You think of all the times we you know use our technology it, it's demand it's driving demand for data centers so i do feel like there's a lot of demand for certain sectors right now it's what again most simply it's what people are doing more of the other side of that is you know what are we doing less of and this isn't new but covid is only exasperating this so i do feel like there's demand for certain products and then the other asset classes that Again, where there's less capital flow like retail, hotels, or office, it's very hard to make a market. There's very little transactions. On the good news, there's not a lot of distress. So owners are able to hold on and continue to own assets. If you want to be the investor, the negative is that it's hard to unlock those opportunities yet. 
on your value add fund? Are you trying to zig when the market's zagging? Like you talk about capital flows going to the things you're interested in, but at times you say, okay, well, wait a minute. You know, everybody's interested in industrial and self storage or cold storage. Maybe I'll go look at a hospitality portfolio yeah. for, as, a, as a terrible example. Well, it's actually not. I hope it's not a terrible example because we've done <laughs> the two largest investments we've made since the summer in since COVID. On the one hand, we did make a large cold storage industrial investment. So that is with the herd, if you will. But we also bought a hotel. We bought a hotel in Nashville. Actually, completely virtual diligence. The property tour was done with an iPad. It is a hotel that some of our team members had stayed in in the past just for personal reasons. So it was a bit familiar. But we did. We bought a hotel because we felt that the pricing was attractive. And we also felt that buying into the Nashville market, for example, and a hotel that's not heavily driven by food and beverage and conference, it's a smaller hotel, would be on the front end of that recovery whenever it would come. So we're, we really challenge ourselves to do both. So I, I got to ask then, Amy, what do you feel, maybe you did the math, what kind of a discount to you know a January valuation on that hotel? What kind of a discount do you think you got buying it during COVID? Just so we can get a, you know, a rough approximation of what's happened to valuations down there. Yeah, it's one off. It's hard to say. I don't think there's enough data points, but I would say for this hotel, we feel like we bought it about 30% less than we would have pre-COVID. As kind of a follow-up question and in a similar line, apparently Adam and I think alike, when you're doing those investments, this hotel in particular or others, whether it's that cold storage or whatever, what kind of duration are you using? Right? I mean, I guess, does it depend on the fund about what kind of return you're expecting and how you're formulating or calculating your IRR? And do you have like a long, certain long-term perspectives? Again, like if you're, we haven't mentioned the word yet and I won't say it, but by the way, there's a virus out there and I know that's a short-term impact on real estate, are you able to kind of look beyond that and just say, you know what, let's just continue on our fundamental strategy that we had back you know, pre-virus? Yeah, two things. So I think number one, you don't want to throw your strategy and your conviction away, but you also need to pivot to the reality of the present. So in terms of duration, most simplistically, I'd say there's an alignment where we invest on the core side of the business. We tend to take a very long-term view. Now, doesn't mean we don't decide that it becomes an optimal time to sell an asset sooner. But in general, we are very long-term oriented and we will own assets for 10, 15 years, if that makes sense. On the value add side, it is different. We are looking to time the market, if you will, a bit differently. We are looking to invest, create value and monetize. So we are looking at that plus or minus five, six year investment cycle. And so they are different. And that does go to how we absolutely gets factored into you know, where we have conviction and what risk we're going to take. I guess to build on what you said, you know, there are certain markets today, and this speaks more now to really office and multifamily as opposed to industrial, which kind of wins everywhere. But with office, with apartments, there are markets that we spend a lot of time talking about what's our near-term outlook versus our longer term. And there are some markets that we think are going to suffer more for the next few years those are markets that we'd actually probably want to be investing into, you know, at that point in time, because we also believe longer term, they'll do well. Uh, but we have to be really thoughtful, particularly on a value add side, you know, when we're going to invest in those markets. But honestly, that holds across the board. 
Uh, you mentioned uh, the word pivot and pivot, of course, has been top of most people's minds for the year, the entire year 2020. You know, speaking from a Canadian context, March, April, May, everybody was just about damage control. And then, uh, you know, June, July, August, people started looking at, hey, there's opportunities in the market. And you know, right now with, you know, rising uh, cases, it's somewhere in between. It's a real mixed bag of just damage control, ride it out, and people that are looking for opportunities. But, you know, not to generalize, but Americans have much more of a can-do attitude. So what's the feel for the market down there in terms of how much people are still trying to just batten down the hatches for a storm versus, all right, we're going to make some money here because there's upside coming? Yeah, I think we've really pivoted to the latter. I, you know, probably there's a disparity across the market, certainly at BGO. I think there's been three phases to this. As you say, phase one was triage, crisis control, keeping our people safe. Everyone was caught flat-footed. And then we moved into the summer. I feel like it was a little bit more of a status quo. We weren't as reactive, but we weren't really moving forward. I really feel like September, October, you know, the last two, three months, I think number one, there is a little bit of that can-do attitude, but there's also a reality that this is not ending tomorrow and we got to drive our business forward. We can't wait. So we have been spending a lot of time on what we call offense. You know, how do we use a good crisis to our advantage, some might say? And where do we see relative opportunity? And again, I think some of that is accelerating what we already believed and had conviction in. And some of that is that modest pivot, right? Whether that means more or less of what we would have thought before, but we absolutely consider it in both lenses. I'd also just say quickly that it does feel like because of that investment activity has definitely picked up in the fourth quarter. It feels very different. And I certainly, speaking personally, we have probably 10 deals that are under contract right now that we expect to buy between end of the year, maybe into January. And that'll be more than we've done all year. I'm going to get a little bit more granular, but still keep it 30,000 feet, or maybe this is more like 15,000 feet, Amy. And let's just start we had a we have a conversation as we always do a little bit before we hit record and you had talked about how you know you've mentioned it in this podcast that you know industrial is sort of the flavor of the month or obviously the most successful asset class but you also had mentioned in our pre-recording that multifamily was not doing very well in the US now to their context in Canada those two are linked right when people are talking about investment they'd say well industrial and apartments right you're clearly going to focus on industrial and apartments not office and retail and it's really kind of the two assets stick together. But that's clearly not the case. Maybe just describe what's transpiring in general in the U.S. as it relates to multifamily. We are seeing a real pullback in leasing occupancy in for apartments, multifamily, particularly in the largest, densest markets. I think in large part, and maybe your apartments are larger in Canada, but if you think about it, right, a lot of people are not enjoying the experience of trying to live and work and spend 24-7 in a pretty tight space. So we are seeing more people generally either on a temporary basis, whether it's living with family or just making a different move as to how they work virtually, you know, leases are coming up. Uh, that's the thing about multifamily, right? It, generally, you have a one-year lease. So a lease comes up, people are saying, you know what, I'm not going to renew right now. So we are absolutely seeing more weakness in the multifamily market, again, particularly in the larger, denser cities. So a New York, a San Francisco, a little bit of the winners on a relative basis are some of the less dense, more affordable markets. So a Raleigh, Durham, a Charlotte, an Austin. So it's not the same across the board, but I'd say it is definitely disconnected from industrial, which I see driven more by e-commerce, 
buying patterns. And I, to me, the two sides of the coin are retail and industrial. At the end of the day, it's all about getting goods to the end consumer. So I see a lot of strength in the industrial market across the board, um, as opposed to, you know, again, some of the weakness we're seeing in multifamily. I find that fascinating. And maybe we're just, you know, Canada always seems to lag US by a certain duration, whatever it is. Sometimes people say it's 10 years, but hopefully it's not 10 years of COVID. And I suspect part of that is because, you know, and this is again a generalization, but Americans tend to be more transient. So I think there's probably more of a willingness to move home or, or move somewhere else versus in Canada that you just don't have that same kind of migration, internal migration. One other thing you had mentioned, and I apologize to keep bringing up things that you had mentioned before, but I just found this really, really fascinating as we were kind of preparing, because you talked about the drivers of industrial, which you've alluded to, being more demand and population-based versus transit and logistics. Maybe just explain what you mean and why you're seeing, because those seem like fairly fundamental things, but clearly the what's going on with the industrial market in the U.S. is greater than just sort of the fundamentals. Yeah, I think there's a secular shift, and this has been ongoing, so this is not new. But I do think it's also being accelerated with the pandemic, to use yeah. that word, which we haven't used yeah. yet. We're trying to avoid it for our listeners. We're I trying know. really hard We're to avoid it. We're almost done, so I had to throw it out there. Right? Yeah. Yes. So most simplistically, what I'd say is that, at least in the U.S., if you think about just our geography, the number of cities, et cetera, traditionally, industrial has industrial sector, from a real estate perspective, has been very driven by the movement and flow of goods. So our port markets are our big markets, right? LA, Oakland, New Jersey, where do goods come in? Where do they go out? And then what are those major distribution hubs that move the goods to where they need to go, right? And you have million square foot distribution facilities, huge investment into the technology that helps move goods through those facilities. I'd say in addition to that, though, and I think the evolution and the secular kind of, if you will, the, the shift is that the way the goods are actually getting to the end user is what's evolving. So that used to be, again, a much more traditional retail channel, whether that meant going to, you know, whether it was a supermarket or the clothing store, but you basically you know, you shopped or you picked up your goods in a retail environment. And now more and more that is happening online. It's happening in an omni-channel way. So yeah, everybody's figuring out how do I both sell online or virtually and then also in person. But the reality is that inventory needs to sit much closer to those population centers. And so it is really fundamentally changing the demand for industrial real estate. And it's adding a component that hasn't, you know, it plays a different role, I guess, than, you know, where really industrial has been focused historically. So while we're on the topic of prime assets being, you know, industrial, what does the financing situation look like down in the States? I mean, and not just go straight to the headline news of, of interest rates, but what are lenders doing in terms of other risk factors? And of course, for anybody listening, I imagine the BGO is getting best in market pricing. So maybe don't take this as a universally available, but uh, it'd be great to hear you know, how you're structuring the finance side of things? I think that right now, debt is an asset from an investment perspective, meaning we do have historically low interest rates. General consensus is that they will stay very low for a much longer period of time. But that said, absolutely, I think a lot of what's driving our pricing down or our cap rates down and our pricing up is the availability of attractive financing and capital. In terms of the sources of that debt, I'd say Financing is abundant for well-leased assets. So core, core plus, but if you have income and you have coverage, 
the banks, the life codes, a lot of lenders looking to provide financing for those type of assets. I'd say it's a little bit more challenging on the higher risk end of the spectrum. For example, if you want to go buy a hotel today, you're not going to have a lot of lenders lining up to provide the financing for that, especially when it's closed. So very different. But And I think, again, that is you're going to pay for that leverage. And you should because it's a riskier loan to write today, just like it's a riskier equity investment to make today. And so I think the good news is that markets are efficient. I don't think they're pricing through risk. I think they're pricing to risk, meaning it's not too frothy. It doesn't feel out of control, but there are opportunities to access the debt markets in a pretty robust way. We're going to ask about cap rates next. But before I go there, I just want to remind our listeners, Adam and I are going to be doing the commercial real estate podcast after show once we're done chatting with Amy. So stay tuned after the jingle to listen to Adam and I digest the the conversation. Amy, so we talked about historically low interest rates. I'll throw this out there. In Canada right now for, let's call it prime location, prime asset, prime borrower, rates are in the range of what we would say like Canada's plus 170. So call that like 2.25%. Again, don't hold me to that. That's today in general. Where are they in the US in comparison to that first and foremost? Like, is that about similar for sort of top quality financing? I'd say that might even, I mean, if you're saying you can finance top quality assets at two, two all in, that's your borrowing cost. Yeah, it's about two and a quarter, I would say, and, and, and give or take, plus or minus 25 basis points. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's that's, not that's, a, that's attractive. I'd say that's more attractive than the US. Okay. Okay. I would say for industrial, I mean, you could get sub three now, but, you know, it was, we, but our markets moved from, I'd say, mid threes to just below threes for really, truly the best of the best low level. Yeah. But, but we'd still be higher than that. Okay. Okay. And I think different world, right? Because we've got with five major banks and three major life codes, not even, it's not quite the same yeah. competition. Well, tell state. them to come lend to the US folks. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> some of them do. We'll take um, some of that money. And, and where I'm going is like, what have you seen cap rates do? Like, I mean, we've, we've seen not quite, like obviously interest rates that you indicated, but they're down about 100 base points, if not more pre-COVID. Clearly cap rates haven't fallen that way because there's an additional risk, particularly the obviously office and retail not necessarily apartments and industrial in Canada, but we still haven't seen cap rates come down nearly that much in either of the sort of the stronger assets. What have you seen with cap rates going on in the US? Stick to industrial, given that that's the one that's got the the heaviest sort of capital attraction. Yeah, we continue to see cap rates compress for industrial. If I had to peg a number, I would say that cap rates across the board and for the best quality assets are probably 25 basis points tighter than where they were six months ago. But we're also capping historically high rents. So factoring all that in, you know, I'd say pricing is probably even more than 25% higher because again, the, the income is quite quite strong and market rents are continuing to grow. I'd also say that cap rates have probably tightened even more in a second location, if you will. So whether that's a bit tertiary in a primary market or more of a little secondary market, we're really seeing cap rates are probably you know narrowing by call it 50 basis points. So the spread between the best of the best and that next year is is tightening. That said, I would still, I mean, generally I think we'd still, it's always property by property, right? But we would still be investors at that level. I think there is continued room for cap rate compression. And again, yeah. particularly in more of the secondary market or cold storage, some of those asset classes that have well, a that's little, the, and that's the delta, right? It's sort of cut you off, but that's the delta between interest rates and cap rates. So have you yeah. seen that? That's actually expanded still, right? right. In, in theory, right? Exactly. So, interesting. Exactly. 
Amy, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you one more question that's a, a bit forward-looking. And, and Aaron actually already alluded to it earlier in that, you know, the U.S. tends to lead Canada on a, on a lot of fronts. And, you know, we see it in the amenity wars started in the U.S. before it did here, a technology, large family, single family rental that just popped up in Canada very recently, crowdsource funding, highly specialized REITs, all these things, you know, front run the Canadian market by, you know, a good five years or so. So what are you seeing down there? New, interesting trend that we probably not seen in Canada yet and, uh, you know, will be coming to a a friendly Canadian city about five years from now. <laughs> way to put her on the spot, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's, I mean, that's, um, I guess I'd say asset classes right now that are getting a lot of attention that didn't, you know, even or more so, right? Exponentially more than they were a year or so ago. Data centers, for sure. And I actually don't know how to, in the US, there are a few markets that are just big data center markets. I actually don't know how that works in Canada, but I would focus on it because that's an important one. Actually, you mentioned single family homes. They're definitely the rental, the single family or townhome, different density rental market. That is definitely um, major focus, big trend right now. And purpose built, to be clear. The d- distinction is, you know, we've had a while the idea of should owning and renting out single family homes, but this is purpose built in a community that is for rent. So in order to do that, it definitely needs to be in markets where land costs less or you're never going to make those numbers work. So, you know, Arizona, for example, we're seeing a lot of this, but that's a trend. I think that'll continue. What else would I say? I guess the other thing, and actually, I think we follow Canada in this, but it's the emphasis on ESG, impact funds, green bonds, what is the future and that next step of evolution and not just the commitment to how we operate our properties, but actually how we also brand them, raise capital and capitalize assets. And so we are seeing evolution, I'd say, on that side of the market. But again, I'm not sure. I think of us following yeah. countries like well, Canada when it comes to ESG. So maybe we'll, the financial engineering we may get to a little sooner, but you know, the essence of ESG, I think we're, we're a follower. We're, I mean, to be fair, we're just following Europe, but you'll figure out how to securitize it and twist it some way to make exactly. it more profitable, right? Exactly. This is the last question, I think, or I suspect anyway. And this, I always love this question, Amy, and I find this interesting just given your history. You have, I'm just going to give you a bag of money, call it 100 million, 10 million, whatever the dollar amount is, and you can invest in any asset in any jurisdiction in the US. What is it and where is it? Well, what's your risk appetite? No, you. no, 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 it's, it's you. No, it's, it's what would you invest in? You're like, what do you think? Like, you could just, here's some money, go, what would you buy? What do you think? Where would you go? And maybe it's industrial because it gets given the frame. So if you want to keep to that, but where, where's the best opportunity right now to find the best upside, let's call it, if you want to think about it that way. That's interesting. The best upside. See, you just threw me a curveball. You said the best upside. You threw that in at the end. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't want to, I'm not a coupon clipper, right? I don't want to just cut my. Okay. My I, 10 I, would do, I would do one of two things. Yeah. I would actually either go buy, if I had duration, I would go buy a, you know, I'd buy like a hotel or a really well located office building, assuming I can really buy it at a very significant discount. Right. Because if I can be patient with that capital, I just I absolutely believe that if you can buy a hotel today for 30 or 40 percent less than you would have a year ago, you're going to make money on that trade. The second thing I would just say is aside from that, if that was a little too high risk for myself and my family, then I would develop cold storage 
near a major population center, but not not necessarily the best, the best, right? So there's many examples, but you go to a Denver, I would be focused. I would not go to a market with a lot of supply, but I would want to build it because if you build cold storage, it's modern, it's state of the art. And that's what I think you need to, you know, to really perform well going forward. I like both those answers because they're both pretty niche types of real estate. So I do, I do appreciate the nuanced approach and not just, uh, you know, the safest industrial I can find outside a major market and, you know, call it a day. So we'll, we'll get Aaron's outsized returns that he's looking for. Yeah, I'll get back to you. I'll, go, I'll send you an email of the hotel I buy and then we we'll can see what it's worth. In, uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll I'll, I'll wire you that $10 million right now. Oh, okay. It was $100 million just five minutes oh, ago. Yeah, it was 100. I can't do anything with 10 to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> Amy, I want to thank you for your time today. This has been super interesting. We don't get a lot of views into the U.S. and especially not somebody in your position that's got such a, uh, you know, a coast to coast kind of view. So we do appreciate everything you shared with us today. We want to thank First National for powering the podcast, the Canadian Real Estate Forums for introducing us to Amy. And don't forget, up next, we've got the after show. Once again, thanks again, Amy. Thanks, Amy. Thank that you, was Adam, great. Thank you, Aaron. All right, welcome back. This is the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where uh, Adam and I are going to digest the conversation we just had with Amy of BGO, managing partner and co-head of the United States for Bentel Green Oak. That was cool. That I mean, that's, you know, you and I do a bunch of these or do this frequently and it's almost exclusively Canadian. So when we get any kind of American or international perspective, I always learn something. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it, this does contradict our mission statement of 100% Canadian, but it's important to pay attention to what's going on with our, our largest trading partner. And as we you know, talked about right at the end there, they do front run us in a lot of different trends. So if you want to know what's going on in Canada in five years, it's probably worth looking at what's cutting edge in the States right now. We just did that one with Frank Magliocco. We kind of, you know, that, during the commercial real estate trends, right, for PricewaterhouseCoopers. And I, I think I mentioned during that that there was, you know, the first 20 pages were Canadian and the last 80 pages were American. And so clearly there's so much going on down there. There's so many markets to cover. It is, I mean, we didn't really get into it with Amy and it was kind of daunting because like, what are you going to, how do you really say, well, let's talk about the major urban centers. And then there's an hour gone just talking about the 12 <laughs> major urban centers or whatever it is, right? It's I couldn't even imagine how you keep track. I mean, she talked about being tertiary in primary markets or in secondary markets. And there's probably a hundred of those locations across the US versus maybe 10 in Canada, right? And it'd be interesting as well to find out what a secondary market means from a population standpoint and the other you know metrics we use that would probably not apply <laughs> down there as much. You know, you could have a city of 2 million people and it'd be considered a secondary market. That's not going to fly here in Canada. Well, she referred to Denver as a secondary market. And I mean, I'm pretty sure the population of Denver is over a million, right? So like just right there, if that's the threshold, we have no secondary markets in Canada. <laughs> I, yeah, I was not surprised at all to hear that uh, Americans are back in deal mode, you know, it's just the way they're wired. The perfect example being the global financial crisis, mortgage-backed securities was the, the linchpin that kind of brought everything down. Here in Canada, we didn't get back into those for a number of years and it also did not feel the ill effects as even remotely as severely as Americans did. And it took Americans 18 months to get back into them after the, after the big crash. You know, it's uh, definitely a nation of people just pick yourself up, dust yourself off, get back at it. So it makes perfect sense that they're in full-blown deal mode right now, whereas we're more of a mixed bag. Well, this is getting a little off topic. We'll get back to what Amy was talking about. But I was on a call the other day with a lender out of the US, a major institution, major bank that participates in the CMBS market. And he said, you know, they're going to the gangbusters and big, big appetite for grocery anchored retail. 
And it's like, you know, in Canada, you can't find financing for grocery and retail unless you're willing to pay, you know, a premium and your leverage is like 50% of value, right? <laughs> anyway, it's just a different mentality, right? Yeah, yeah. The uh, Well, the, that's the actually one aspect we didn't get into that kind of wish we did is we talked about financing and I was actually a little surprised to hear that our best-in-class interest rates are a little bit lower than they are in the U.S. What we didn't talk about is, you know, a, a mortgage doc can be 20 pages. Interest rate is one page of that. On the other 19 pages of those docs, the American mortgages tend to have a lot more flexibility, a lot more risk taken on. It's definitely different you know, than what we do here. So I, we should probably should have discussed that a little bit. If, yeah. if Americans are deciding to mitigate some of that risk a little bit, or if it's still 85% LTV loans, just as uh, you know, standard and all the other crazier stuff you hear about. I mean, again, no more tangents here, but I remember having a conversation with a client that owned apartment buildings in Florida and apartment buildings in Canada. And we were trying to get him to take on some financing here. And he, we were sitting in the meeting room and he goes, like, guys, like, I can get 30-year term, 30-year AM fully open down in the States at the same interest rate. Like, why would I do this and lock in? It's only 10 years, right? Like, it just, it's just a different world down there. So... Anyway, you know, Amy was, I mean, I, what I found really interesting was just her perspective. And I mean, it takes somebody that's got her kind of experience in the industry to just be able to look at things on a sort of the capital flow base on a fundamental basis. You know, one of the things I wrote down just about the, she called it a secular transition in sort of the way that industrial is being viewed away from transit and logistics, which is the historic fundamentals and more towards sort of demand and population. And I guess translating that to Canada, that's probably more about the urban industrial, the last mile that we talk about, the fulfillment centers that need to have that same-day distribution strategy. But it's, again, just listening to her talk about the way that she looks at things, it's so 30,000 feet. Yeah, not just industrials, industrials, industrial, that there's going to be accelerated returns if you get into the you know the real the nuances of the asset class i mean i started my career industrial as you know and you know my first two days of the job i thought it was purely by the pound kind of uh, asset but it wasn't then i just didn't know it i had to learn a little bit about real estate before i figured that out but even more so now as industrial uses continue to get more and more specialized in terms of what you can and can't do the other thing the concept you brought up that i really really found it interesting was investors desire not just to get back in the market. That's kind of a given, you know, especially in America, they want to get back in the market and here in Canada, people do as well. But specifically, if we are at a trough right now in the cycle, and you know, hopefully we are, and by all news accounts with vaccines coming, we are in the trough and it's all up from here. Trying to jump into real estate that's just at the starting point now is going to be going to pay you more of a return than buying into an existing pool of assets that were already, you know, and maximize from a return basis and purchase in a different time. And, and, you know, and we're not pinpointing this moment in time to try and start as your base. I mean, obviously with, you know, the public markets, there's value fluctuations, but it was an interesting comment she made about people really want to get into assets that you be beginning the life cycle of improving that return now, not call it pre-COVID or legacy or whatever, whatever word you want to use to describe that. Yeah. Like, you know, she... Sorry, my brain's spinning here. It's almost, and let me go back to one of the first things you said about just, you know, the, the implications or the, the, the capital flows and how there's a ton of money going into industrial and they're seeing cap rate compressions, industrial rent appreciation. And this is a terrible example and a terrible comparison. I apologize, but I, I wonder or potentially if there's the, the opportunity for sort of the Calgary office impact where there was just such a flood and then all of a sudden people realize, oh, wait a minute, each commerce is not this incredible thing that's going to grow exponentially and totally kick out retail. And all of a sudden we've got 
way too much industrial and the industrial usage is down. And now there's a 15 year glut in sort of industrial occupancy and rents and things like that. Like, I, I mean, who knows, right? It always seems like, and again, totally generalization, but sometimes I think people get the herd mentality and there's too much of a flood in one direction. And she talked about it in that sort of hypothetical, here's a hundred million dollar question is you'd go, I'd go and buy a hotel. Like you could buy something at a 30% discount that in five years is going to be back to the same market value it was six months ago and then hold on to it for that cash flow for 15 years. Like I think almost if I was an investor, I'd be going, ah, industrial is not the, I don't want to be a follower. I want to be a leader, right? Yeah. I mean, but if you've got a prime industrial site coming to, to market, prime industrial investment opportunity coming to market right now, it's got to be pretty crowded at the uh, the bargaining table. And yeah, if you can show up uncontested and and like obviously they, that, that would be for some of their higher risk funds and they are balanced out by, I'm sure, a pile of very, very safe vanilla assets. But yeah, I mean, if you can juice up your return and take those take those shots, you could look very smart five years from now. Your hotel occupancy is back up at you know, 75, 80% or whatever you're getting in uh, the Nashville market. And, oh yeah, we bought that in uh, 2020 and this is what we paid and you'll... you'll yeah, we bought, it on a, we bought it on a seven cap back then and now it looks like a nine cap or 12 cap if we look backwards, <laughs> yeah. right? So, yeah. Um, and then multifamily, yeah. let's finish it off before we wrap. I mean, I'm curious. I mean, it, it, we'd have to, I mean, think harder about why that multifamily sector doesn't have the same kind of shine it still does in Canada. I mean, in Canada, we've seen a little bit of softening, of course, but you know, vacancies are up from 1% to 3%. Like it's not it's immaterial versus it sounds like in the US, there's some material shifts in what's transpiring in that asset class. I mean, I, I can't speak definitively on, I know on, on data, but I do know in a generalized sense that vacancy there was not like it is here. You know, virtually every Canadian, major Canadian city across the country, we had these vacancy rates that were just so, so, so compressed. And so yes, vacancy rises and there's there's less renters at the high end and other things that we're experiencing. If you're going from a half a percent vacancy rate to a 3% vacancy rate, that's going to have some pressure on pricing. But if you're going from a four to a nine, you know, as you would in a lot of those mid markets in the US, that will you know kind of pull the bottom out on the rental rates at a much more rapid clip. So that's maybe one point, maybe there's 10 other good reasons that we're not getting. But I, I, yeah, I was surprised to hear that a little bit too. That's very, very interesting. Well, I guess that's everything we have to expound upon on the U.S. market. It's definitely not our strong suit in terms of uh, knowledge, but it is interesting to see. Thanks for listening to The After Show. And you know, thanks again to First National for powering the podcast. See you guys. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.